You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin, that's me, the second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. So, welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Friday, the 9th of April. Anne, how are you? Hello, Kevin. I'm well. How are you? Well, I'm really good, Anne, because I'm recently back from Boogie Music Festival, which happened over the Easter weekend, and I heard Kian sing that song we just heard then called Better Things. Beautiful song. Mm. Yeah, and it was my first proper festival back for quite some time, and it was interesting watching Behaviour different behaviour in the crowd, which brings us into our topic today, which is about you lot, women. (laughs) And proud of it. (laughs) And proud of it indeed, yes. Because because of the the obvious imbalance in the way our economy treats women. It's been going on for way too long Mm. um, and there's change in the air. Mm -hmm. Getting worse on the economic front, but yes, change in the air. Is it really getting worse on the economic front? Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's not the first time I've heard that. Um, I went to a meeting a while ago. There was uh, a woman speaking who was very active during the 60s, and she said that there was more progress back then Mm -hmm. than there has been since in many respects and that things have gone backwards on on a a number of fronts. Wow. When the feminist movement first rose during the 60s, it was quite enthusiastically uh, accepted and and people kind of... um, went, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Mm. you get the backlash and uh, Mm. things start reverting. Yeah, well, effectively, I think what you can say too is that um, women have been a casualty of the whole neoliberal era. They've fared worse under the neoliberal system than men. So, of course, we're going backwards faster. But does that come back to what we were talking about in previous shows about the the base unit of the neoliberal model being the economic rational man and we keep on coming back to you know like <laughs> men are the most productive people and therefore women can be disregarded well i mean some of the mechanisms for why women are going backwards economically or being forced backwards in a way was actually really well spelled out by um professor barbara pocock she really spelled out what happened during the covid pandemic so it was even ratcheted up then in terms of the response of the Morrison government uh, in the budget last year for every dollar that was spent on women, $2.28 was spent on men. So effectively, they got double the response, even though women were hit harder in the COVID pandemic because, of course, all of the industries that women dominate in, including retail and hospitality and entertainment and tourism and uh, education... All of those were the hardest hit, and they got the least help. Now, who's Professor Barbara Pocock? So, Professor Barbara Pocock is a retired professor from the University of Adelaide. Back in August 2020, our comrades in Adelaide at the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group, they hosted an online event, and you can find them online at sustainable-prosperity.net.au and a speaker at this particular event was Professor Barbara Pocock who is a Professor of Economics. I thought we might listen to some of what she had to say then because I think a lot of that is still relevant. She was talking about how women in particular 
have been affected by the COVID-induced recession and about the economic response to that by the federal government. And we'll also hear her responding to some questions put to her by organiser Gabby Bond. Um, I'm going to talk at a more macro level about this recession. I'm going to talk about what's different about this recession from earlier recessions, which really make the gender story different. We've lost jobs in such different places to the last recessions, which were really about manufacturing, very painful job losses. But in this recession, it's women. It's women who are losing their jobs way more than men, and they have lost many more hours of work um, in those areas of accommodation, all the service sectors, retail, arts and the creative industries, the whole care system. And we've got 11% of women at work today who are on a zero hours arrangement. That is, they're actually technically employed, but they have no hours. And that compares to 7% of men. So big gender differences. And women are withdrawing from the labour market and disappearing out of the statistics at a very fast rate. And there's a, a sort of triple whammy for people who are young, who are low paid and who are female. They are the most likely to be unemployed at the moment. When I packed up um, to go to work on employment creation in the Hunter Valley in 1983, uh, the workforce was just over a third women. Now we've got one in two workers women. Now that is a game changer in a lot of households. Women are now breadwinners in so many households and their income and the loss of it um, is really a critical big shift that creates a lot of pain in our communities. So what that means is that more than half of our current job creation has to go to women. An extraordinarily contagious and deadly virus has forced us into our homes. Now, that has a big impact on women. Big changes out there in the labour market, but also big changes on what's going on in the home with more, a lot more care responsibilities, a lot more looking after each other, a lot more cooking, homeschooling, all of that. A lot more, um, not just physical labour, but emotional and organisational labour. And lots of women are finding that a really significant impact on their lives. We know from all the research over years, I've done some of it, that 70% of mothers without a pandemic feel rushed and pressed for time. They're stressed. What we now see is a much bigger amount of unpaid labour and the stats that we're getting, which are not very good, but they're the best we've got, tell us that two-thirds of that unpaid labour is done by women. And that's exactly the proportion that the time use surveys from the ABS tell us that women usually do. So a very traditional allocation of unpaid labour, but a lot more of it. Um, So that's a big impact on women. And we've got a third of the workforce now that are not full citizens at work. And we see that so clearly in the operation of of JobKeeper, where with the exclusion of casuals, of contract workers, of people who've got bogus self-employment arrangements, no paid holidays, no sick leave, And it has a very big impact on women because women are disproportionately in that precarious workforce along with a lot of our young people. We've got a second major crisis which is looming in the background and that is the need to address our climate emergency. So we've got a crisis that's urgent, it's important, it's killing many people around the planet But we need at the same time to see the next crisis coming and the incredible significance and importance of decarbonising our economy, of dealing with bushfires, of switching to renewables, of transforming our transport system and stopping environmental degradation. All of these things are both a challenge but an opportunity as well and they should be really affecting the kind of uh, economic response we make to this recession. We can spend the lot. Unlike earlier recessions, we've got low inflation, we've got plenty of excess capacity to put to work, um, and every government agency, from the conservative people in the Reserve Bank, in Treasury, in every uh, consulting house, all the banks, think tanks across the political spectrum are all saying, please spend. You know, so we've got a big switch away from uh, at least a major party um, obsession with balanced budgets So we've got no shortage of money. We've got lots of money to spend. So let's then turn to what's the government actually done. Well, many of you will be very familiar with this. They turned on the tap really fast for a wage subsidy into the private sector. That was a really good, fast thing to do, despite, of course, many limitations in it. It left a lot of people out. 
It turned the tap off too quickly for childcare workers. It's never done anything for universities, which have been singled out for such specific attacks. It's left out casuals. And they've also doubled, of course, JobSeeker, which lifted 425,000 Australians out of poverty. That's probably the most significant social policy decision ever made by an Australian government, uh, as the Australian Institute have pointed out. It's, it's huge and, unfortunately, it's temporary. Government, of course, has really turned its focus in terms of job creation to a very specific bunch of shovel-ready projects. It loves a shovel-ready project. Shovel-ready uh, projects in local and state government up to $1.5 billion, a third of which is only on roads. We've got a gas um, push from the COVID Commission. But in terms of employment creation, what we're looking at is a program for a 1950s workforce. It's not a program for a 2020 workforce. It's such a classic case of a bunch of politicians who just don't get the modern family or the modern household. They don't understand it and they don't know how to write policy for it. And what the consequences of their policy will do is it will push many women back into hidden unemployment and back into their household with a whole lot of other consequences that I won't go into. So let me briefly just say what I think a gender-just program would look like. First of all, we need a job-rich response. The Australia Institute once again has shown us that um, if we spend a million dollars in construction, we create one job. If we spend a million dollars in childcare, we create nine jobs. Um, and we know that those nine jobs in childcare, for example, eight of them at least will be held by women. So that's a job-rich program and we know we need it. We underspend in our childcare system relative to almost every other OECD country. So we've got a lot of things we can do there to catch up. So there's a whole lot of things we can do that, that build not the infrastructure of roads or the infrastructure of really big freeways and that sort of project. We need to build the infrastructure of everyday life. That's what we need to build. And that includes bricks and mortar. That includes, of course, building social housing, given that we've got 400,000 people on our waiting list for public housing at the moment. There's two particular areas as obvious places for us to spend. And the first is our care system. We really underspend on aged care and childcare. And if we really boosted our childcare spending, I mean, if we just spent five of those 183 billion and added it to the eight billion that we actually already spend on childcare and take that total to 13 billion, we would be able to make childcare free for almost everybody except the very rich. And, and we can also spend very, very productively in our early childhood preschool systems. It's not just childcare. And our aged care, it's being shown to us every day in great, with enormously tragic consequences. We, we've got a need to spend between 10 and 20 billion immediately on uh, creating some hundreds of thousands of jobs in our aged care sector. Many of those jobs will go to women, they will be socially useful, and they make a real difference. The second big area we need to focus on is in relation to the environment and the crisis there. There are so many job rich employment opportunities in. A beginning, not just mitigation, but also preparing our world for the crisis that's coming next. Greening our country, remediating our bushfire damage, supporting renewables. There will be lots of jobs in that for women and young people, and they are uh, really effective ways for us to spend our money. None of this is rocket science. We've done it all before. We've done large job creation programs through state, federal, local, and not-for-profit uh, organisations. This is that infrastructure of everyday life and we really need to do it and set targets for women's employment. If we don't do that, men will get more jobs and many disadvantaged groups as well as women will miss out. Uh, we can move to a national job guarantee as modern monetary theory encourages us, but even if we can't do that immediately, we've got, you know, the big green go-ahead stamp from all our financial institutions and we must do these things now before the next crisis hits us, but we can do it and we can really make a difference which will affect so many thousands of men, women and children. Are the decisions being made the way they are because the people making those decisions are the ones who never had to navigate a employment situation where there were like one job for every 15 job seekers? Does the problem come back to who is making the calls? We have hollowed out our bureaucracy so much 
that we don't have strong policy people there who have got the imagination and the knowledge to actually uh, devise anything other than a wage subsidy. And, and I mean, there's also real politics in it. Conservatives want wage subsidies and they're just pushing that money out and some of it we know isn't even getting to workers. But I think the institutional capability and particularly loud, noisy, respected feminists are now very, there are not a lot of them that you hear. Like that kind of whole network of decent policy advice is missing now. Barbara, what did you learn from your work in the Hunter Valley during the 80s recession that could be applied in the current economic crisis? Yeah, so that was under the Hawke-Keating government and it was very imperfect, but it was a sizeable expenditure which was allocated across Australia based on the number of long-term unemployed. Local communities proposed ideas. In Newcastle, where I work, for example, we built the first Aboriginal community centre. It's still there. It put a lot of staff into that centre. It built childcare centres. It put multicultural workers into those centres. It built and repaired um, the surf life-saving clubs that you can still see when you drive around Newcastle. It was built in the first recession in the 1920s. And, and every one of those projects had to show how many jobs would go to men and women, how many would go to Aboriginal workers, what training there would be, what opportunities were there for people whose English was their second language. I wonder if you have any thoughts, Barbara, about unpaid work that women do. If we measured unpaid work, it actually doubles GDP in almost every country. Uh, we've got the best data in the world on who does domestic work, but we've stopped collecting it. The ABS did time diaries, which is so important for actually knowing because women really underestimate their unpaid work and tragically men tend to overestimate their unpaid work. And we as a country, we're not moving that data. We haven't moved it in all the years I've been observing it, which is over two decades. Um, we really need people to keep time diaries and we haven't got any for the COVID. There is some research asking people what they do and trying to keep rough diaries. And it's certainly increased, but it sounds like from what I've read that the ratio of two to one, which is the conventional burden that falls twice as much on women than men, is being reproduced. But I think what a lot of women talk about now is it's not just the washing and, the, and organising the food and shopping and all of that. They're feeling a lot of the effects of the uh, mental and emotional effects of lockdown with young people and the people they're homeschooling and so on. So I think it's a big issue already, unpaid work, but that kind of emotional labour is also incredibly important. One of my favourite research projects ever was interviewing young men um, and young women in uh, grade 7 and year uh, 10. And this is not so long ago, tragically, about how they thought they would organise <laughs> unpaid work in their households. And um, uh, the young men had strategies already about how to minimise and how they would hope to find a wife who would do it all, that, you know, for example. And this was across rich and poor schools. It was a very strategised kind of gendered uh, thing. And the women were also working out how they would um, penalise their partners if they didn't do the old divorce him. I can remember this young kid saying... So, you know, I think it just goes really deeply to our gender constructions as men and women, and we're not seeing it change yet. If we did have a job guarantee, how would we treat people who are working in those caring roles, either for caring for their own families or mm. caring in the community? Um, I'm curious about this in modern monetary theory and the notion of a job guarantees. I feel like we need to think about work in a very broad definition, for example, include creative work and certainly include caring work as socially useful things to do. That may not mean you're in a workplace, but you're making a contribution to your community and you shouldn't have to just turn up to a paid job in order to qualify as being employed. But one of the problems with that for feminist policymakers is that if you make a payment or make accessible a job guarantee to women who are caring, then you lock them in to that domestic function and there are a whole lot of negative things that come from that which we were very happy to leave behind in the 1960s for example being beholden to to a man who runs a household being subject to control so yeah it's a, it's a really complex issue and i've yet to sort of come to grips with the way job guarantee can do something in a way which doesn't give the caring responsibility one way or another to women but also recognizes caring work as useful work 
So essentially what went on with the Frydenberg-Morrison budget back in October 2020 was a federal spending response that Professor Barbara Pocock describes as effectively a program for a 1950s workforce. I thought that was a great summing up. And this was a federal budget that was very unfriendly to women, even though they had taken the biggest hit on the COVID recession. So I certainly love the way she said, we need to rebuild the infrastructure of everyday life. But what we got was a rebuilding of the infrastructure of roads. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. There was so many people hoping that some of the problems that we had before the COVID recession hit would be addressed uh, with the reset, with an economic reset. But what we're seeing here is just reverting back to form. Uh, And we had problems with inequality in the workforce before the COVID recession, and it sounds like it's going to become worse. Well, it's actually uh, coming up in some of the global stats as well. There's a thing... Uh, called the Global Gender Gap Index. And this is put out by the World Economic Forum. And they just published some recent stats. And they've been uh, comparing how women and men do in four main areas, health, education, work and politics. And they rate all the countries. So they give, give all the countries around the world a ranking. Mm-hmm. And they've been doing this since 2006. So back in 2006, Australia was number 15 out of 115 countries. Surely we've improved since then. Oh. <laughs> Ever the optimist, Kevin. <laughs> so, well, have a guess at where we are now out of 156 countries. Where would you put Australia? Well, if we're 15th then and we're a progressive country, we should probably in the, be in the top 10 now, I'd say. We'd, we'd probably, I'm, I'm going to say 7th. 7th, wonderful. We're at number 50. Oh, dear. We're, at... <laughs> we're, uh, we're not that progressive, really, are we? We're actually behind South Africa at number 18. <laughs> So even though South Africa is doing overall worse, say, economically, the difference between men and women is not as great as here. And I reckon we should be at least be up near our sister country there, Canada. Canada's at number 24. So we've got a little bit of a way to go. And you can see, just from what Barbara was saying, why Australia keeps going backwards. You can see what the actual decisions that politicians are making are sending us backwards. But, you know, on this world, um, on this global gender gap index, it's a really weird situation because Australia often ranks number one. In fact, we did. We ranked number one in education. So men and women in Australia are getting the same education. But when it comes to the economics and the politics, we're seeing this huge, huge gap. And, for example, just on the economic side, women are at number 70. We're ranking number 70 in the world. 70th. Yeah. So like, what's going on? You know, we've, got, we've got this obvious frustration in Australian society at the moment about the way women are being treated. And what's going on? Could, you, could it be as simple as what we're seeing in Parliament, that women are mm. as educated as men, and, and yet still they are being treated far worse uh, in the economy. They're being disregarded mm. in the economy. Mm-hmm. Is this frustration boiling over now? Are we seeing the obvious reaction to a group of people who are equal and educated in every way but still being suppressed? Mm-hmm. I do come from a family which uh, has strong mm-hmm. women in it. I've got seven sisters and they're all very vocal and very active. Uh, so I've been kind of exposed to women's movements over the decades and it's feeling very active for me at the moment. Yeah, your stats seem to make mm-hmm. sense of that. When you tell a bunch of empowered, educated, smart people that they that they don't have an equal mm. seat at the table, they're going to make mm. noise. And I think that's mm. what's happening now. Yeah, and I was also wondering about that issue where Parliament becomes this icon of how not to treat women in the workplace, you know, crossing sexual boundaries that shouldn't be crossed. I was thinking about how that could be something that, Uh, reinforces a glass ceiling in terms of how well women are promoted and how prominent they become. We heard Barbara Pocock talking about the 1950s approach that the government is taking to Mm -hmm. the recession, having shovel-ready jobs, which means blokes, you know, with with shovels and jackhammers. I love that. I love that summary that she made. Yeah, 1950s approach. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. 
it sounds to me like they have a 1950s approach to where women's position in Parliament is as well uh, in mm. the Conservative lot. That, and people keep on saying, they say, oh, but it happens on both sides and it's just as bad. I reckon if there was scandal on the Labor side of politics, we'd be hearing about it now. And I think that the reason that there isn't so much scandal on the Labor side mm-hmm. of politics is because they have proactively mm. seen, seeked uh, to uh, include women in their cabinet. They're almost at 50-50. I think they're at 47%. And they have strong women in their leadership group. You, mm. you can, you've got uh, Tanya Plebisic, mm. Penny Wong. Uh, we've spoken to Jed Carney. Uh, there's Keneally, uh, mm. Peter Murphy uh, from mm. Dunkley. But they have positions of power. Now, the big difference mm. that I see in politics is that the women in the Liberal Party on the coalition side, mm. are mimicking the bad beha- behaviour of men to try yeah. and fit in. Yeah, yeah, they're the Margaret Thatchers of politics, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they come in and they think, oh, well, if I'm going to survive in politics, I need to be like a man and then some to compensate mm. for the fact that I'm a woman. And so mm. you end up with this obnoxious, aggressive behaviour that you get from people mm-hmm. like Michaela Cash. Uh, there was that mm. Sophie Mirabella um, a politician from a while ago. And, and they, mm. they just come in so strong and so hard. Um, mm. It's like... It's like they're amplifying the bad behaviour mm-hmm. set by men, um, right, and I think right. it's I think it's different in the Labor Party, and, and yeah. that has obviously reflected in the ALP culture because we're not seeing the scandals. Maybe they're going to come out. Maybe I'm going to be wrong, but, mm. and they have had problems in the past. Well, I think Morrison was already he was already trying to throw dirt around, wasn't he? Because he was accusing I think Sky News of having a problem when they were questioning the government. So he's already tried to throw, you know, the dirt back. And I'm sure they would be scrambling to find dirt on the ALP to make it look like it's not a conservative government Absolutely. This is what they do every time is they go, oh, look, you know, it's a problem. This is a societal problem. This happens everywhere. Yeah, it happens everywhere, but some places are worse than others. And it's bad Mm. in their party because of their attitude to women. Yeah. Doesn't matter where else it's happening. If it's happening in your backyard, you need to look at it. Anyway, we'll throw to another song, Anne, and uh, uh, we'll come back and we'll discuss um, the Boogie Festival. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Cash Savage and The Last Drinks, who headlined on the opening night at uh, Boogie Festival last weekend. Now, you know me, Anne, I love going to festivals, and Boogie was the first festival I've been to in a very long mm-hmm. time. Three-day festival. I know you were itching <laughs> to get there. Actually, uh, I went to a little one-nighter a couple of weeks ago down near Warrnambool, uh, and there were some interesting comparisons. The one that mm. I went to in Warrnambool a couple of weeks ago, which is a one-nighter, uh, was a bit of a country party. It was like having a party in somebody's okay. on somebody's farm. There were mm-hmm. the good old country boys getting an, a bit of a skinful and becoming a bit inconsiderate. Now I got to say it was a, a, a lovely festival, but I just did mm-hmm. notice, like I'm there down the front of stage, and <laughs> the country boys come in and they've had a few beers and they're just inconsiderate and knocking around and having a good time, but. You see them just stand in front of mm-hmm. some women who are watching and blocking their view, and mm-hmm. it just sort of take it for granted. Yeah, radio. You, you, you don't often see that at festivals these days. You don't see people getting drunk at festivals so much these days. People don't drink too much. <laughs> then I go to Boogie, and Boogie was different. If you have live musicians who are female and they're dominant in the bands, the women in the audience lift and mm. feel empowered. They feel like it's their festival. They're not just tag-alongs. Mm. Mm. Uh, and then the men have to shift their behaviour to accommodate. And so okay. there's far more awareness. Uh, and you get this this really lovely levelling. Mm. Uh, and that was certainly the case at Boogie. I, I, I like that. Wow. I love hearing you describing that dynamic because always, in, in all these areas, they always say we need to see people in positions of power. Or we need to see women or we, we need to see you know people of colour, whatever it is. We need the role models. That's always the argument. 
And so you're really describing why we need to see women on stage. Well, Cash Savage called it out straight. She said, why are there no women in your bands? She said, there's plenty of good female musicians out there. Why aren't they in your bands? She was calling out the bloke bands. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Going to a festival is like um, a little microcosm uh, of how society could and should be if it's done properly. And mm. if a festival is well organised, mm-hmm. you see this uh, this uh, f- far more equality, far more uh, mm. respect. Uh, mm-hmm. And the festivals that I go to, there's no there's no violence, there's no aggressive uh, aggressive mm. behaviour. There's no nothing gets stolen. If anybody's mm. in trouble, it's constantly repeated. Everybody look after each other. Everybody look after each other. And mm. That's especially noticeable with the with the female part of the uh, the festival goers um, compared to the festivals I used to go back to decades ago, where mm. it was a lot of drunk blokes and women had to be really bloody careful uh, because mm. there was this constant threat there. Um, right, these right. these these new festivals that's that's almost been eradicated. You know, cross your fingers and I hope nothing. But I've been to quite a few and it's always a lot more respectful uh, and. Mm. Great to see, yes. but that comes down to the music choice. Yeah, it's, isn't that great? I love the idea of the festival being the microcosm of what's possible, you know, and I've yeah. experienced that myself as well. And it's funny, you know, that uh, security around your body and safety for women is often matched by security around possessions about stuff. Like I've noticed that, like uh, I've been to festivals where you could just leave your bag on the ground when you went to the toilet, you know, you knew it would be there when you got back. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a it's a good um, a good social experiment. Now, the other thing I do at festivals is because uh, I'm a middle aged white guy, and we're public enemy number one because middle aged white guys have um, uh, wrecked the world uh, just through just through being in positions of power. So, I need to present myself in a way that illustrates that I'm not part of that gang. So, I go in for a bit of cross dressing. I like to wear uh, women's attire uh, mm-hmm. just to soften my approach. I identify as male, but mm. But I, I like to uh, dress in a way that disarms that impression of being a middle-aged white guy. Right. And it, it works quite well. Like I've got this little denim skirt that looks like a pair of denim shorts. Uh, so mm-hmm. you have to look to – you can't really tell, but just these little tweaks and adjustments, mm-hmm. you know, put mm-hmm. a bit of nail polish on. Uh, mm-hmm. I like wearing flares, that sort of stuff. And mm. women are far more receptive if I'm not dressing as a typical bloke. Uh, and it also, because I'm usually older in the crowd, it sends a bit of a message for some of the blokes as well, who I've got to say are great anyway. But they can see that there's mm-hmm. that you don't have to be the blokey bloke. You can just you can soften your approach, uh, and it's appreciated. Right. right. So you get to see how people are reacting to to your appearance. Then isn't it interesting how clothing can change? Not how you feel on the inside. Like you know, that's why you doll up to go somewhere because yeah. you know it makes you feel different. If you put heels on, you know you feel different. Yeah. Um, but then people react to you differently, so it becomes this sort of feedback thing, doesn't it? This feedback loop. It's it's a two way thing. Uh, if I'm if I'm dressed that way, it makes me behave differently. So mm. I have to behave accordingly. So and then people behave accordingly to that as well, and it changes the dynamic. It's really good. Interestingly, the uh, the only people I got a bit of uh, attitude from were there were a couple of guys who were in full cross dress. They were they were like in drag. There was one guy wearing a, a dress that was pretty out there. At, well, two of mm-hmm. both of them were, and I went up to one of them and I said, look nice to see um, guys uh, wearing dresses. I think it's good. It, it kind of changes opinions. And he he was very defensive. He said, what makes you think I'm a guy? Well, he had a beard and stuff. And, but <laughs> but quite rightly, he said, look, you know, I, I, I don't identify as, as what, what makes you presume that I identify as male, especially if I'm wearing a dress. And I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I just didn't know mm. what um, pronoun to use, blah, blah, blah. And he like I kind of copped it, um, uh, and there was another guy, similar sort of stuff. They were they were quite aggressive in their responses, which was very mm. male, if you ask me. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of contradicted their claim that they're not that I shouldn't be presumptuous mm. about their uh, about their gender. Mm. Uh, yeah. But I guess um, uh, they might have been through quite a lot, and they might have copped a fair amount of flack uh, over the years, and so it, you have to take right. that into account. Right, but, uh, so you were com- you felt like you were approaching them pretty open and really interested in what they were doing and how they were being and 
and they could have had a, a softer uh, sort of educational moment with you if, uh, <laughs> if they felt like they, yeah, were, well, that they were, I was, you were making assumptions. Yeah. I was trying to find a point of connection and I was generally being positive about what I was saying. But And I am still a middle-aged white guy, so maybe they just responded mm. how they expected it to, to roll out without fully understanding how I was approaching it. And I learned. I learned from what they were saying. I listened to them and I learned from what they were saying. So mm. so I took that on board. It, but it was interesting. The only aggro I caught was from two cross-dressing guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's such a fundamental thing, gender identity and gender expression and, and playing with those boundaries and experimenting. That's where change can happen as well. Well, I think women are only too aware of the imbalance in society in terms of just the, the, the imbalance of the sexes. And so there's a requirement for men to step up. They probably are not as, as aware of what's going on because everything's great if you're a bloke. You get paid well, mm-hmm. you get all the positions, everything opens up for you. So men aren't going to mm-hmm. uh, be as proactive about change as women are because they're not suffering the consequences. So it is up to men to step up and to become more aware mm-hmm. and to deal with this. So mm-hmm. I do what I can at uh, festivals to further that cause, but uh, unfortunately at festivals I'm probably preaching to the converted because most of the blokes there seem pretty mm. aware and they do a great yeah. job of it anyway. <laughs> hey, Kevin, this is where the change needs to happen. It's really interesting uh, On an upcoming show, I'll be focusing on the economics of mothers and women in the workplace as mothers. And here I was thinking I would be talking about the experience of women. And one of the things that kept coming up was, well, we've really got to look at the role of men in all of this. And of course, it's obvious if women are going to be able to negotiate all of those pressures of being a mother and being a worker... Um, the only way that that pressure is going to, going to lift is if men are changing their attitudes around their roles as fathers. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a combo. We've all got to work together on this. Well, men are in the driver's seat. W- women are suppressed. Uh, and we won't have balance unless men and women work together. And that's going to require men to adjust their attitudes, to be far more accommodating, to appreciate uh, on equal terms the contribution of women in this society, and in fact, in, in many respects, the, the, the greater contribution of women in this society. So men need to change. Mm. It does amaze me how the role of a mother as the primary caregiver is so undervalued in our society. Mm. I'm mm-hmm. just speaking from my own experience and, and, uh, and, and what seems fairly obvious. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. I've got two, uh, two adult kids now. And when we had our, uh, when my partner and I had our uh, two children, it changes your life and everything is about providing and looking after your kids, it, it, especially when they're really young. Mm. It's like it's all-encompassing. It's your main focus. So, And I felt that as a mm-hmm. father and, and a lot of fathers that mm. I speak to feel the same way. So why is it that we undervalue the role of the mother who is often the primary mm. caregiver in, in a situation like that? It's the most important thing and yet we don't think it's worth anything. It, 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 that's confused mm-hmm. me. Yeah. When women take on that role, they end up being uh, set back financially. So one of the big issues is if they're out of the workforce, then they're going to end up with a lower superannuation at the end of their working lives. It's not only that we undervalue it or don't value it, we actually also punish women economically for taking on that role. It's bizarre. <laughs> so it's like it's a lose-lose economically, yeah. We, we do know what it's worth economically because we charge for childcare. We charge for, in the care economy, if you don't look after your own, you have to pay for it. So we know what it's worth because there's actually mm. a dollar value on it. Mm. And that dollar value is undervalued yeah. because childcare workers don't get paid enough for doing the important job that they do. Exactly. So it... There'd mm-hmm. be an economist out there somewhere who could figure out what it's worth to raise a child. I think they have. I think they've. Well, I think they've effectively worked out what unpaid work contributes to the economy as a whole, and I think it would effectively double the GDP. It's enormous. So, it's enormous. So, mm. so we understand what it's <laughs> worth. So, I wonder what would happen if the government paid the primary caregiver, which is usually the mother. Mm. appropriately i wonder how that would work in mm. the economy you know um mm. interestingly when when we had our first kid uh i was working as a casual theater technician and my wife was working as a youth worker and we were both earning about the same amount of money and we both kind of had the same career prospects and neither of us were particularly ambitious in, in our career so 
we had a discussion about who would be the best person to stay home and look after the um, the kid, and mm-hmm. both of us wanted the gig. <laughs> well, it quite appealed to me. I thought it would be good, mm-hmm. um, and I lost because I can't breastfeed. Um, so that was it came down to, <laughs> it came down to that. <laughs> so, as it turns out, I was working in the evenings uh, and she was working during the day. So I uh, ended up staying home and doing a lot of uh, child looking after our daughter uh, when she was first born in the first couple of years anyway. Um, and we were able to juggle mm-hmm. things around. And it was a, a terrifically um, bonding experience. It was it was great, you know, like I um, mm. and there's one thing I can tell you is you can't get anything done with a, a little kid. <laughs> I thought, look, I could stay home and I could do some renovations and look after. Nah, nah. Yeah, little right, kids right, need right, full time right. attention. It's, That's it's... right. Well, I have to admit, I'm I don't have kids myself, and yeah. I've had the odd, rare moments of minding my nieces when they were very young. And I remember my sister coming home one time and saying, "What? You're still still where I left you? Why haven't you cleaned up the house?" You know, ah. just, I'm like, I don't know how you get anything done. <laughs> you can't. You, you start. You get about ninety seconds of something, and then that you need to pay attention. You just can't yeah. start anything. It's impossible. So it's it's a it's a tough gig, um, and I uh, have the utmost respect for. My, my, you know, I've come from a large family too, and my mum uh, uh, did a lot mm. of child rearing, <laughs> and. Uh, mm-hmm. I can I can only imagine. So so there's whole there's a whole range of things that that you could consider about that. And one of them is um, by the breastfeeding argument that uh, women are the best person to look after a kid in the first couple of years. Yeah, just mm-hmm. and and there's I know there's people who disagree with that. You can uh, you don't have to breastfeed and all, all sorts of other ways. You can express the milk and so on. Yep. Yeah. And some women do want to, and some women would prefer not to. And those those discussions should all be had. But if if mm. a woman is going to stay home for the first couple of years of a child's life uh, to to be the primary caregiver, and they have a couple of kids, which is quite common, then they might be uh, out of work, out of their their normal job for three, four, five years, uh, while they've got mm-hmm. a couple of a couple of young kids around. So. It would seem to me that at the very least we need to have, uh, as you've said, um, a superannuation scheme that covers them during that time and mm-hmm. then they should also have uh, like a retraining um, uh, facilities available for them to uh, to make up on lost time uh, if they want to go back mm. into the workforce and pick up from where they left from. Just simple things like that would, would improve mm. society enormously. It doesn't take much imagination. No, it doesn't. And, you know, one of the things that's coming to me with my MMT lens, pre my MMT, I used to think, oh, this is just about priority. So when you see someone being left behind, whether it's women, whether it's young people, whether it's old people, whether it's immigrants, whoever it is, whenever you saw some cohort not being looked after, I used to think, oh, well, it's just priorities and they always are down the bottom of the list and a progressive politics would put them at the top of the list. But now I think, well, actually, it's not just about priorities. It's, a, it's deliberate exclusion because we know that the government could pick up the tab on anything that it chose to pick the tab up on as long as we had the resources. So if we have enough childcare workers or, you know, if we have the desire to put pensions through a superannuation system rather than a um, well-paid retirement system, then the government could choose to do that. So now I'm seeing it as a choice now of governments or not to have equality uh, for women when it comes to the economics. Yeah, it it, it comes down to, uh, as we've stated before, uh, ideology and, and the ideology of the current conservative government is this 1950s mindset. Build roads, keep women in the kitchen, don't pay them. Uh, they could. They could tomorrow. Modern money theory teaches us that we need to consider the productive capacity, and it also uh, informs us of the inflationary effect of uh, of spending into the economy. I just can't see that there'd be too much of an inflation problem if you address some of these issues. Are you, are you going to have an inflationary effect from maintaining women's super uh, while they're uh, child-rearing? Um I can't see that being inflationary. Is there going to be an inflationary effect from retraining women afterwards? No, you, you can mm-hmm. put money in that. In fact, it damages the economy. It, it yeah. lowers productivity. So all these things would be good for the economy. We're not going to have a risk to inflation. We're going to have better productive outcomes. So why don't they do it? Mm. Ideology. Just They just cannot get themselves out of this 1950s mindset. Mm-hmm. 
It's very interesting how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect the capitalist framework when it's not working. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference. And people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. Let's spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. My hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build a more people-centred and focused future. And, you know, that comes down to us. It comes down to the 3CR listeners, the, the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists. It comes down to everybody that makes a difference and puts in. We need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate go to 3cr.org.au. Just in case you thought that uh, listening to a bunch of girls at a festival might be all soft and lovely that was bitch diesel with their song wine who played a boogie on the weekend totally rocked it out a fantastic band to watch now what else do you want to talk about Anne? do you remember uh shortly after the government started responding to the covid pandemic do you remember all this talk about snapback <laughs> how the economy was going to snap back <laughs> yeah there was a big discussion about whether it's going to be a v-shaped or a u-shaped recovery came across this article written by albana asmanova and james galbraith who um james is an american economist and it was this article called disaster capitalism or the green new deal They kind of articulated the answer to this sort of little blip of a question I had in my head, which is why is the government so busy telling us we're all going to snap back? What these economists said was that a rapid return to normal, however illusory, (laughs) is the only way to preserve the legitimacy of debt contracts, to preserve the capital structure of many banks and businesses and the rights of creditors and landlords and thus the foundations of their economic power. So it is therefore a political strategy of the ruling elites. And I thought, oh, that explains it. So all this talk about snapping back, that was all about saying that they really didn't want the the public to experience this idea of what it's like for the government to be footing the bills So we saw, for example, with the JobKeeper, what was that? That was essentially the government footing the payroll bill of most of the economy. If people understood the currency capacity of the government, the spending capacity, they might start asking for a few reforms like universal childcare. But if you have this narrative of we're going to snap back, in other words, this is just temporary people and we're going to go back to normal, then you're you're going to entrench that power of of the uh, financial elites, as this article was saying. So I thought this I th- was kind of I interesting. think I understand what you're saying, and this is a really good observation that I hadn't considered before. If if they mm. snap back, then things can return to pre-COVID normal as soon as possible without anybody really noticing, and that's great if that works for you. Which means mm. if you like the polarisation of the economy mm. and the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Mm. Um, People won't notice that the government has the fiscal capacity exactly. to come to uh, the aid of people who need help in our society. Yeah, exactly. It's, it was a political strategy. It was nothing to do with the economics. You know, people might wake up to the idea that, for example, that the government could forgive debts, they could forgive predatory loans, and maybe we could build all the social housing yeah. that we need. So, yeah, yeah. I, I thought, oh, yeah, it had blip in my head about that was an odd narrative but now I'm understanding it <laughs> that's a good that's a very good observation and uh, however the the snapback as they might like it to be is uh, going to come under a fair amount of pressure now that uh, jobkeeper has been abolished and job seeker has returned unemployment benefits back to half the poverty level like they're really punishing the poor again it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few months because they're going to put a lot of pressure on people who still need support uh, so take, for instance, the, the Byron Bay Blues Festival was just cancelled. And I know that my people that I know in the events industry are reeling from that. It was uh, 
but it's, it's a big event, you know, and you've got this contradiction where the New South Wales government is happy to have the footy on with tens of thousands of people uh, attending the footy while there's still hundreds of people with, with COVID, and yet one person in Byron gets uh, gets COVID and they cancel the festival on the day that it's supposed to open. The, the question's been asked, could they have done other measures? Could they have put in... Uh, distancing could they could they have made people wear face masks was there some way to hold the festival with an increased covid responsibility rather than just cancelling it uh, and a lot of people i know think that the new south wales government doesn't value the arts and entertainment industry they value footy but they just don't understand and don't value yeah, yeah. Uh, arts and entertainment i think you might have a point there that it's um, there's a bit of discrimination going on how in how they're enforcing these, yeah. these safety Yeah, and this rules. has happened at exactly the same time as JobKeeper's just been cancelled. So there's a lot of my friends who are dependent on mm. JobKeeper uh, because because of the effect that it's had on the entertainment industry. And they've now got no safety net. They're now fully exposed uh, to, mm. to financial yeah. devastation. Uh, and that's going to happen across a few industries now. But uh, we have to wrap up mm. because, as always, there's another show following us. We can't hog the airways. There's only so much time. So we're going to continue this conversation. Uh, yes, and um, what's really nice about this upcoming show is that I'm going to be speaking with someone who is a mother and who has talked to lots of mothers, so we get the inside story. Excellent. Radio. Well, I'll see you at the next show, and Bye. See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. No, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we've got a multiplier of pleasure here. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.